I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. This will certainly have an adult theme and might well contain strong scenes of sex or violence, which could be quite graphic. It may also contain some very explicit language, which will frequently mean sexual swear words. What do you like listening to? Um... <laughs> Chart music. <laughs> Chart music. Hey, up, you pop craze youngsters, and welcome to part three of episode 64 of Chart Music. I'm your host, Al Needham. I'm standing here with my dear friends, Neil Kulkarni and Simon Price, and fucking about isn't on our to-do list. So let's rejoin the episode in progress. Take a look at me now. Well, the old Boom Bang Bang Eurovision Song Contest is looming. Representing us this year is a band called Bell and the Devotions. Here they are now with a catchy little ditty called Love Games. Janice, surrounded by the females of City Farm, including one woman in a hoopy vest who appears to be doing some stomach muscle exercises to her right reminds us that the old boom-banger-bang Eurovision is looming, so it's time to promote the UK entry. And here it is, Love Games by Bell and the Devotions. Formed in London in 1983, Bell and the Devotions consisted of Kit Rolfe, who was born somewhere in Yorkshire in 1956, and had put out a string of singles in the early 80s which fell to chart, and no one else, as the backing vocals were also done by Rolfe. While putting out a couple of singles under the name which failed to chart, Rolf was drafted in as an off-stage backing singer for Sweet Dreams, 1983's UK entry for Eurovision, and at the beginning of the year, Linda Sofield and Laura James, who were born in London in 1963 and 1966 respectively, were bolted on in order to take part in 1984's Song for Europe. They performed this tune, which was written by Graham Sasher, who had knocked out songs for Tony Christie and Baccarat, and Paul Curtis, who wrote the kiddie glam anthem We Want a Superstar for Christmas by the Angels of Islington in 1975, but had become absolutely obsessed with Eurovision, having already written 12 songs for the Song for Europe competition by 1983, but only winning once so far when Let Me Be the One by the Shadows was the UK entry in 1975. This year he had written or co-written four of the eight songs for Song for Europe which took place at the beginning of the month including one performed by Sunita and one by a Bucks Fizzer-like group called First Division 
but it was Love Games that came up on top by miles, thanks to its instantly recognisable hearkening back to the 60s girl group scene, which had recently been mined by Tracy Ullman and Phil Collins. Immediately signed up by CBS, they rushed it out as a single, which entered the chart a fortnight ago at number 87, then soared 39 places to number 48, and this week it's just got under the line at 39, meaning the BBC finally have their chance to shill their coverage of Eurovision 84, which takes place in Luxembourg a week on Saturday. Chaps, another participant in a song for Europe this year, Hazel Dean, having her second go after failing to win in 1976. Probably for the best that she didn't win because Searching, I Gotta Find a Man, had been re-released after failing to chart last year and would get to number six next month. So it would have been problematic for her to um, be plate spinning, if you will. And and it's so incestuous because um, not long before this, Mm. um, Paul Curtis had released a record with Hazel Dean under the duo name Curtis and Dean. Yeah, so there is that. I'm just surprised that you didn't start this bit by saying, Bell and Devotions are Bell and the fucking Devotions. Mm, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, not not really a, an act with much chart longevity, are they? No. Paul Curtis, that you mentioned there, he wrote over, I think all in all, over 20 songs that became entries to, you know, the Eurovision yeah. Song Contest. Not all of them British ones. Yeah, and, really? uh, So, yeah, he was hedging his bets. He wrote for some, you know, entries for other countries as well. I call that being a traitor. <laughs> I agree, Al. Well, you know, but he has form for this, or he had form for this, because uh, later on, he wrote the winning FA Cup final song two years in a row for different teams. Really? Yeah. Fucking hell. He, right, 1989, for Liverpool, he wrote Kenny D, The Pride of Liverpool. Right. Which is uh, very similar to Con Can's I Beg Your Pardon, by the way. Okay. Then in 1990, he wrote for Manchester United. Oh, man. Yeah, We Will Stand Together, which has kind of got a lot of the vibe of the Bee Gees You Win Again in Search of a Tune, to be honest. But That's fucking mercenary, man. It's bad. Um, anyone knows you just don't do that. You don't... No. You don't, mm-hmm. you don't play for both Liverpool and Man United. I mean, no. there, there haven't been many. Um, He's the Paul Ince of songwriting. Miller, Chilton... Chisnell, Beardsley, Ince, Owen, and Curtis. Mm. But he obviously was um, a fairly decent job in songwriter. Have mm. you heard the Northern Soul tune that he made? Oh, yes. Mickey Moonshine. Mickey Moonshine, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's called Name It, You Got It. And I've got to say, it's brilliant. It's got a sort of a Frankie Valley begging meets Isaac Hayes shaft feel to it. Mm-hmm. Released on Deco in 1974, so it's not one of those really obscure Northern Soul things. No. It's a white guy doing Northern Soul, which is known to aficionados as crossover. And mm. some people don't like crossover stuff. But no. um, it, it genuinely did get played at the Wigan Casino and you know that's something I like about Northern Soul it was very kind of omnivorous it would just Mm. it would just scoop up anything from anywhere that you could dance to yeah the the suggestions as to who Mickey Moonshine was was uh, Alvin Stardust really and Paul Nicholas the the voice of authentic (laughs) black everything Northern Soul like it used to be yes (laughs) well you know it had Alvin Stardust done that it wouldn't have been completely you know surprising because the DJs to places like the Wigan Casino would play anything you could dance to. There was stuff like um, uh, Afternoon of the Rhino by Mike Post Coalition, which is just some kind of yeah. li- library music for TV themes, which, you know, was, was a real kind of dance floor hit there. But yeah, so whatever else we're about to say about um, Paul Curtis, and I, I don't know whether we like the song or don't, I don't know what our consensus is going to be. He mm. did write this absolute Northern Soul banger, so just, you know, give him that up front. So, yeah, Bell and the Devotions. 
shaking Supremes. Yeah. Really. I mean, they look like they've been loaded into a cannon and fired through Sue Pollard's wardrobe. <laughs> Let's get that out of the way from the beginning. That's spot on, yeah. Apart from the fact that two of them are wearing yellow coats. Oh, oh well done, yeah. Yeah, yeah they look appalling. Um, yes. I can't tell if I like this song or not, because, mm. look, we all love Motown. There's a yes. lot of this stuff about it this time in pop. Oh, loads. But, but I can't tell whether it's good... Because it's hooky, it's memorable. Oh, mm. it just feels a bit too cynical. Yeah. To the point where every single turn it takes, you know, reminds me of a Supreme song. It's it's as if yeah. the Supreme's 20 Greatest Hits LP has been fed into a bot and kind of regurgitated. Mm. So you've got bits of reflections and Stop in the Name of Love and Keep Me Hanging On and Where yeah. Did Our Love Go? To the point where it sort of barely seems like a song. It almost seems like a medley record of hits you didn't know the Supremes yes. had had. I mean, the thing is, if you're doing a song in this style and you have your backing singers going, baby, baby, your game's up, isn't it? Yeah, but I mean, truth be told, doing a totally retro bit of pop like this it's kind of not a bad idea when it comes to eurovision um and you know the eventual place that they get is kind of par for the course for your uk eurovision entries you know books fizz had proved popular i mean even the winner this year diggy loo diggy lay by harry's aka Mm. the dancing deodorants as they were called by a local (laughs) critic um you know that's very dated as well yeah perhaps i'm overinflating the excitement of books fizz but i remember when books (laughs) fizz were doing you know making your mind up on top of the pops that it was like i don't know it was like you're waving off um, an aircraft carrier to the falklands or something (laughs) there was that feel this is gonna win you I know, counted them all is... out and I counted them all back. Yes. <laughs> there was that feeling. There you know, were four of them. Yeah. <laughs> and we were waving our contender off with the sounds of triumph almost already in our in yes. our ears. But yeah. but yeah. with this, you don't get that feeling really no. from the audience. Um and as it emerges, of course, in their final performance on, on Eurovision, it definitely doesn't happen for them. Uh, although, no. you know, coming seventh, actually, comparative to now, wouldn't be that bad for a, a UK. Triumph, wouldn't it? It would mm-hmm. for a UK Eurovision entry. But um, um, yeah, there's not that sense of triumph that we felt waving off Bucks Fizz. No. We're not as confident that these lot are going to go to Luxembourg and do anything. For the benefit of you and the pop craze youngsters, I sat through the, the song for Europe of 1984. And, mm-hmm. you know, the minute this song comes on, you just go, oh, well, that's going to win. Yeah. Because you've instantly got it. You know, everything else was a, was a bit cat shit. Mm. Even Sunita, for God's sake wasn't very good would you believe by the by i think it's out of order that he was allowed to have four different entries in song for europe i don't think that's right yeah it shouldn't well, be allowed the yeah. thing with that is everyone's songs entered blind you know you don't know who's written the song mm-hmm. so yeah i mean it wasn't as if people knew who he was he even had a crack at performing one once did you see this um in 1980 in the uk song for europe um paul curtis was in a group called duke and the aces right and, uh the, the lead singer of whom was Bruno Tonioli of Strictly. Really? What? Good lord. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's footage of it. They're wearing those... I mean, it was 1980, so how you got away with wearing these at, at that time when, when punk was four years ago, I don't know. But those kind of um, flared jumpsuits where the top half looks like a very tight waistcoat and the bottom half is just massive Saxons. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I know what Neil means, right? I know what Neil means about... Um, not being able to decide if this is a good song or not, because mm. it's like a simulacrum of a good song. Yeah, yeah. It hits all the points of a good song, all the points that yeah. a good song's meant to hit. What it's like, you know those Channel 4 stings where you've got 
odd-shaped pieces of masonry hanging from a crane. And just for a second, they appear to assemble themselves into a giant four. Mm. It's like that. It's like Mm. all these elements of a song which just coalesce. And for a second, you think, oh, it's a good song, while you hear it. But then you think, oh, I I don't know. It's just a little bit... Like you say, cynical is the word. But then I I think, well, how is that different from a good song, just Mm. on a cognitive Mm. level? If something seems like a good song, then isn't it a good song? I mean, I'm I'm like I'm like Matt Goss on that point. I can't answer that. Yeah, but you've got to compare it to the other songs of that ilk that was floating around at the time. I mean, the the trend for the retooled sixties girl group sound it's been a thing for a couple of years by 1984, and it's you know it's reaped plenty of rewards. You know, Tracy Ullman's singing career, Mary Wilson, yeah, and I liked early Banana Rama, uh-huh. uh, Lol Mason and the Masonettes, and you know even Phil Collins's cover of You Can't Hurry Love. But this feels like the end of the line here, mm, I suppose. Yeah. But I was still so much into Motown yes. that, that I I would have given this a pass. In fact, more than that, I I would have like Neil said, I would have been cheering them on. I would have been cheering them mm. on when it came to Eurovision. Yeah. You know, as soon as the competition was over with, that would be the last I even thought of them. Yeah. But just for as long as it took, I, I would have thought, yeah, you know, it's a bit Motown-y. And mm. also, as well as the Supremes, it, it does reference other soul things. Like, So, for example, there's that bing, 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 bing guitar yeah. bit that is actually directly lifted from his own Mickey Moonshine record. Right, oh, right. right. That's a direct lift. So, yeah, it's, it's a little uh, little nod for the heads there, for the, for, you know, for, for the casino. <laughs> no faithful the way they look though really doesn't help that's the no. thing um, it's very proto madonna isn't it it's madonna without the millions of accessories i've got to be honest i i got to kind of on behalf of my 15 year old self politely disagree because as as a <laughs> as a horny teenager at the time mm. i would definitely have been triggered by the devotions if not by Belle, mm. because of the white mini skirts and the big hairdos and all of that yeah like, yeah i think at the time i would have possibly been storing something up just like brian mcfadden was in that mariah video <laughs> it's the colors of their their outfits they're so garish it just reminds me of hilda baker on cracker jack or something um <laughs> going through some shit pop song dressed modern like you know, that there, there's that aspect. Their, their look doesn't help. I suspect, and I don't remember hearing it on the radio much. If I'd have heard it on the radio, I probably wouldn't have had a problem with it. But this appearance probably makes it me have problems with it. Are you being racist now because they're white? Uh, no, I wouldn't actually say it's explicitly that, although you might be right. But no, it, is, it isn't <laughs> just that. It isn't just that. No. I think if I did hear this on the radio, I might assume it was, a, it was an all-black girl group. By this time, though, by 1984, if you'd have heard this on the radio, you would have gone, OK, they're probably white. Yeah. They're probably a bit Tracy Ullman-ish. It's, this has been co-opted by whiteys, this kind of music by yeah. 1984, mm. hasn't it? Yeah, no, it has. Um, it's not that they look awful or anything but I, I come back to that word cynical they're not going for a 60s kind of looking in what they're wearing or anything or the way they're moving but, I mean look it's Eurovision for God's sake maybe I'm being a bit too uh, uh, up my own ass about this but yeah I think it's a good record but this appearance would have put me off it I think mm. I think the fact that it has this special status has some bearing on the way that it's presented um, mm. because every Eurovision entry every British Eurovision entry would be allowed to go on top of the pops beforehand yes. whether it was a hit or not it would just get yeah. sort of you know um, parachuted in there and it's kind of hermetically sealed off from the rest of pop and in the way it's presented they're performing in this inside this kind of pyramid like pod aren't they it's yeah it looks like they're in a hydroponic chamber yeah yeah <laughs> and obviously yeah we, we we now know that they didn't exactly set eurovision alight and there is this conspiracy theory yeah. about that isn't there 
about about why mm. they didn't form as well as they might, which is that England football fans only uh, a little while before this yes. had rioted in Luxembourg where the competition was being held mm. after England had beaten Luxembourg 4-0 and that still wasn't enough. Yeah. And if you see the footage of it, it's it's so of its time. Apart from anything else, they've all got mm. um, Union Jacks instead of Cross of St. George, which is what mm. England yeah. used to do uh, in those days. Mm. But yeah, supposedly the people of Luxembourg were sufficiently pissed off about this that, you know, they poo-pooed Bell and Devotions and even booed them. I don't recall seeing any footage of writing in Luxembourg and seeing Bell and Devotions <laughs> chucking a bit of garden furniture <laughs> through a window. It's not fair. Any more than Gemini didn't bomb Iraq schools or anything yeah. like that, you know? Do you, do you think that was the reason? There's a bit more to it than that. Oh. So I'll leave that there for now. Anything else to say about this? Well, um, as you can tell from the crap i've talked already Mm -hmm. go down a bell and devotions rabbit hole which you know if even if it's the sort of rabbit hole that ends up like the warren in watership down like bloodily churned up by a jcb (laughs) following the river of death downstream but a rabbit hole nevertheless (laughs) and you know i found out a few other things um tell us well first of all paul curtis um which you know spoken about a little bit already yeah i stalked him on social media shamelessly oh good lad he tells a story about when one of the bands he was in he doesn't say which were on um, a european Mm. tv show it might be music laden one of those top and pop top and pop (laughs) and um on the same yeah on the same show as rainbow and apparently richie blackmore came up to him and uh, well i'll just read it out i'll read what he says I would like to share a weird but funny story. My band was number one in Europe. First of all, pause there for a second. Was he number one in Europe? Okay, carry on. Um, At that time, and we were at the TV studios in Hamburg. Also there were Deep Purple and many other great artists. Okay, so it's not Rainbow. I met Richie Blackmore, one of my heroes, outside our dressing room, and he asked me if he could borrow my plectrum. I laughed. He smiled. So I gave him my plectrum. We were on last, so we watched Deep Purple perform in the studio. Richie turned his guitar backwards and pretended to strum away on the wooden back of his guitar. When they finished, he came over to me and said, thanks, and smiling, handed me my plectrum. (laughs) Apparently the TV director was not amused. How could I forget a moment like that? Dot, 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 dot. (laughs) <laughs> ah, plectrums for goalposts, isn't it? <laughs> and um, and he, he comes across okay. He's very, um, he's very sincere and a bit Christian, and uh, mm. he's he's obsessed with Dua Lipa for some right. reason. And he keeps posting about her, but he's anti-Trump, so you know he's all right. But yeah, the other thing is about Kit Rolf herself, the leader, who is basically Belle. Mm. Well, Kit Rolf, before being in Belle and Devotions, was in a sort of Canadian electro-goth band called Vega, who I looked into, um, in the same vein as Berlin or Gina X performance, that kind Mm. of thing, um, if that means anything to you. But um, I also looked into what she's been up to since Belle and Devotions, and sad to say, she is a mad anti-vaxxer. Oh, no! Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you've got basically Eric Clapton, Van Morrison, Ian Brown, Kit Rolfe, all the good. <laughs> Bell and the ends. Lest we forget as well, one other thing about Rolfe, of course, is that single that she did with um, Eddie the Eagle Edwards, Fly Eddie Fly. Of course, oh, yes. Don't yeah. bother listening to No. <laughs> so the following week, Love Games soared 18 places to number 21, but Bell and the Devotions would have a torrid time of it in the Grand Duchy when Dutch newspapers accused the group of outright lick and pickerage of Diana Ross and the Supremes, <laughs> and even worse, accusing the f- 
filthy, cheating British of installing extra backing singers behind a curtain during dress rehearsals and that Sofield and James's microphones hadn't even been switched on. (laughs) Oh, dear, oh, dear. Even worse... On the morning of the competition, the Daily Mirror reported that neither of the devotions sang on Love Games and Rolf had dubbed the backing vocals. That evening, as the group finished their song, boos could be heard from the back of the Theatre Municipal, which startled and upset Terry Wogan. Bastards. <laughs> it went on to finish seventh, well behind Diggy Lou Diggy Lay by the Swedish entry, Harry's. Mm. Although the instant assumption was that the booing was due to England twats in Union Jack Shorts, who had picked up Luxembourg and threw it through a pub window five months earlier, an article in the Aberdeen Press and Journal reads as follows. British delegates at the Eurovision Song Contest in Luxembourg were still angry yesterday over Bell and the Devotions being booed by the Dutch section of the audience after singing Britain's Hope Love Games. But they will not be making an official complaint about the booing, which shocked the audience and was heard by more than 500 million people in 30 countries. The anti-British reaction by the Dutch was understood to have come after newspapers in Holland carried stories claiming Love Games was similar to an old Supreme song. So there we go. <laughs> the truth at last. Bringing shame and disgrace on a once great nation. Yes. It's odd to, to expect. I don't know. I, I suppose people want people not to mime. But I mean, come on, it's Eurovision. Yeah, for fuck's who sake. gives it I think. I think, yeah, it is important <laughs> to point out that not the entire crowd were booing because it's, it's just typical isn't it mm. um, the majority of eurovision fans are decent upstanding citizens but there's always a tiny minority of eurovision hooligans yeah. who spoil it for all the rest yeah, exactly <laughs> <laughs> also a thing about the microphones being switched off imagine that a music program where people's microphones aren't switched on who would yeah. watch that yeah yeah and of course yeah, it would yeah. only be a year later when ken bates installed electric fences around the eurovision song contest <laughs> The following week, Love Games jumped nine places to number 12, and the week after that, it got to number 11, its highest position. The follow-up, All the Way Up, failed to chart when it was released in June of this year, and the group were dissolved shortly after. Kit Rolfe went on to tour with Gary Newman as a backing singer, sang backing vocals on Fly Eddie Fly, the 1988 single recorded by Eddie the Eagle Edwards, and would reunite with Hazel Dean as the backing vocalist for Samantha Janus when she represented Britain in the 1991 Eurovision. And she now trains horses in Essex. Oh, instant supply to all that ivermectin, eh, Simon? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. 
That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Well, to your revision people on tonight, the Sandy Shaw was on earlier on. There's Bell and Devotions and Love Games. They're going to Luxembourg on Sunday. Wish them lots of luck for the Eurovision Song Contest. Bob Marley's video is a star-studded celebrity package. Once again, getting himself involved with the women folk of the studio. Reminds us that Sandy Shaw is a former Eurovision participant, which she wouldn't be happy about at all if she'd sought to disassociate herself from it and the song she won with, Puppet on a String, the minute it won in 1967. I had to dig into that. Fucking hell, it's a, it's a very interesting story. In January of 1967 chap she'd been lined up as a singer of the next eurovision entry and she was lined up to sing one of five song for europe entries once a week Mm -hmm. on the rolf harris show uh, on a saturday evening but then she was named as the other woman in a divorce case and described by the judge as a spoilt child who felt she was entitled to do anything to gain her own ends (laughs) okay (laughs) the publicity And the fact that Rolf Harris and his manager were actively campaigning behind the scenes to get Shaw replaced, saying that her presence was ruining his reputation as a family entertainer, Hmm. steps back, strokes chin, forced the BBC to have her perform in an empty studio in case the studio audience dragged her off the podium and into a ducking stool. (laughs) To her disgust, Puppet on a String a song she immediately disliked, won, Mm. and she found herself in Vienna still being given the cold shoulder by the BBC and the host of the Eurovision Song Contest for the BBC, Rolf Harris. Mm. Although she's since come to terms with a song which is still the biggest selling Eurovision single of all time, she was still pissed off with it and the BBC's attitude to her and Eurovision by 1984. And as for Harris, well, in 2015, Shaw said, knowing what we all know now, but I knew then, I found this hypocrisy as a 19-year-old minor very hard to understand. Yeah, fucking too right. Absolutely right. right. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it uh, it really gives you some insight into the, the place of young women in popular culture mm. at that time. Yeah. I mean, talk about fucking frying pan into the fire when you yeah. um, connect that to the story that I relayed earlier yes. which, that she told me about yeah. Jimmy Savile and Top of the Pops. Mm. So, yeah, from, from Savile to having to work with Rolf Harris and the mm. way that she was treated by the media and by the judiciary from what you're saying there Mm. it's yeah it just it it really gives you a bit of a chilling insight into how young women were treated yeah very much painted as the scarlet woman Mm. swing in 1967 everyone there thank god all that's changed now eh? (laughs) i mean we don't need sort of extra reasons to hate harris but fucking hell i'm adding that one Mm. Um, i didn't know that at all 
Yeah. So uh, hopefully Belle and the Devotions didn't knock on her dressing room door asking for advice, particularly as the lead singer was called Kit Roll. Oh, God. <laughs> Bates then tells us that the next video is a star-studded celebrity package. It's One Love, People Get Ready, by Bob Marley and the Wailers. Born in Nine Mile, Jamaica in 1945, Bob Marley is Bob fucking Marley. <laughs> As the lead singer of the Whalers, he had been part of the biggest band on the island since the mid-60s and instrumental in popularising reggae across the world in the early 70s. But it wasn't until 1975 when the original Whalers have split up and he created a new band called Bob Marley and the Whalers that he had his first UK hit when no Woman No Cry got to number 22 in October of that year. By his death in May of 1981, Bob Marley and the Whalers had notched up eight top 40 hits in the UK, and when Island Records rushed out No Woman No Cry as a tribute, it got to number eight in July of that year. After emptying the can of unfinished demos for the LP Confrontation in May of 1983, Island began work on their first Marley compilation LP, Legend, which is due out next month. And this, the 1977 remake of the original Whalers 1965 single, which was featured on the LP Exodus, is the lead-off cut from it. It entered the charts last week at number 35, and this week it's jumped 13 places to number 22. So here's the video, which was shot by Don Letts, who documented the punk scene in 1976 and introduced Marley to it, which inspired him to record Punky Reggae Party. So, chaps, the video, let's get into that first. Half footage from the promo film for Is This Love, uh, which was shot at the Cascadee Art Centre in Islington in 1978, features Bob Marley at a kid's party having a lovely time and apparently has a seven-year-old Naomi Campbell in it. And then half modern day footage from Let's in World's End. Yeah, it's basically like fucking Pigeon Street or something. <laughs> Late 70s, you couldn't have a kid's party without some fucking pop stars turning <laughs> up, man. Sex Pistols in Huddersfield, Bob Marley in Islington. Yeah, it's like the Walton Hop for reggae, yeah. Mm. <laughs> it peddles the same sort of revolting message of the song in a way. It's kind of everyone's getting along, isn't it? All lovely. It's even that horrible moment where, where Arasta, I might even be Don Let's himself, you know, shakes hands with a copper. It is Don Let's. Obviously, the copper's going to go, hello, hello, what's going on here <laughs> yeah. then? And it was explained that, oh, we're shooting a video. Yeah. And it's like, oh, oh, okay, well, you know, you've got a camera there, so I can't club you around the head. <laughs> it's the copper from Not the Nine O'Clock News going, right, you yes. gay black bastard, I'm going to oppress you. <laughs> but he can't because there are cameras there, yeah. I think that moment's there to kind of reassure the middle-class living rooms of Britain that reggae poses no threat in a sense. It's, I mean, it just reminds me of when, you know, when fucking William Hague went to the Notting Hill Carnival or yes. something. <laughs> yeah. yes. 1984 is the year the Scarman Report comes out. There's racial tensions on the streets yeah. and in the terraces and and you know this video isn't having any of it everyone's getting along it's all it's all fine mm. and, and it does of course give us the lovely sight of 
Paul McCartney limbering up for what we all know is his greatest oh, yes. moment. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but yeah, it's fucking Pigeon Street, isn't it? And there's a, a mini Marley, isn't there? Uh, Jesse yeah. Lawrence. Yeah, Jesse Lawrence, that young British Jamaican boy, he's he's the spit of Ethan Ampadu, the uh, um, defensive central midfielder of Wales and of On Loan uh, before he got his haircut. He's not just some actor from a stage school who's been parachuted in. No. He actually lived up there on the 18th floor of one of those yes. blocks in the World's End Estate mm. in West London where, where it's filmed. And and it's filmed actually in his house. In his flat, yeah, yeah. His yeah. parents... Uh, his parents, Bernadine and Paul, they, they'd been involved in the punk scene, so let's would have known them. Bernadine yeah. used to cook meals for Johnny Rotten, did you know Yeah, that? you used to get Johnny Rotten's tea on at Gunter Grove, didn't you? Amazing, and she went on to be a cookery writer. Yeah. She wrote How to Feed Your Family for £5 a Day. Which would be an aspirational book nowadays. <laughs> Christ, yeah. Uh, Jesse studied painting and photography in the Chelsea School of Art and Design later on himself and uh, became a filmmaker like Don Letts. I, th- I think it's, uh, um, you know, it's, it's a logical choice choice to get Let's in to do mm. this because he was actually a friend of Marley's yeah he managed to sneak in after a gig in London and got talking to Marley and mm. they sort of became friends and I think it's a, it's a nice choice filming it on the World's End Estate you know it's, it's West London it's a, a lot of it's on the King's Road which connects yeah. with Don Let's punk past of course mm. so we see the kid walking around and yeah it's intercut with that archival footage of Marley yeah. at a children's party and yeah. looking like a, a family man yeah. Robert yeah. family man Marley <laughs> yes. a, a joke for the heads there there's a scene where uh, a young girl's playing with his ear which of course all black people absolutely love oh, it when yeah. white people do that <laughs> oh have you oh, got yeah. funny yeah, ear oh, can yeah. I touch it Christ and we also there's, there's loads of punks and goths hanging around on the yes. street mm. they're looking shit and distrustful of the whole thing but yeah. um, it's really nice for me to see them because I'm thinking God two years later I was probably stood next to you at the Kit Kat or sat mm. next to you underneath Eros on Piccadilly Circus but too shy to speak and it's, yeah just a quite, quite a nice little preview of my future life mm. there. <laughs> yeah because at the end when they're all sort of marching about and getting the carnival spirit going you actually see and this is this is a demonstration of how diverse uh, pop culture was even in 1984 you see a pile of Weetabix don't you you see a punk ah. a psychobilly and a skinhead all sitting together oh, brilliant getting on yeah, yeah. not staged in the slightest <laughs> I mean, I quite like all that stuff. I'll tell you what I could live without, though, I'll be honest, is all the celebrities goofing around. We've got Suggs and Cole Smith yeah. and Madness, yeah. two-thirds of Bananarama, mm-hmm. Junior Giscombe, yeah. Brinsley Ford and Drummy Zeb of Aswad, right. Neville Staple, and yes, of course, Paul McCartney. Uh-huh. All giving Bob Marley the thumbs up, it, literally so in Paul McCartney. <laughs> of course. <laughs> Did you notice that Suggs has got a Malcolm X t-shirt on? Has he? Yes, he oh, has, okay. yeah. Yeah, right. um, predating Spike Lee by about five years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's the T-shirt, the promotional T-shirt for Malcolm X No Sellout by Keith LeBlanc. Ah. Of course, yeah. yes. I recognised yeah. those names and I spotted them. Yes. But there are others that I didn't recognise. I have no fucking idea about it. He's been doing my head in. Yeah. Particularly that one woman who looks like she's in Catch a Fire. She looks like very Peruvian. Mm-hmm. I originally thought that was Alana Cura. Yeah, I did, but it's not. Even more bemusing, like, there's one bloke who is the spit of Brian Murphy in George and Mildred. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> He's having a right fucking ranking skanking, isn't he? <laughs> 
Who, who knew George Roper is Ital? <laughs> but there's no way of finding out who the fuck these people are. When I was doing my research, I was convinced that George Roper was someone who worked at Ireland. And I think those people are all Ireland staff members. Oh, I see. Could be. I see. Yeah. I think... I'm not sure if there's anybody out there who wants to educate me Don on Letts, this video. If you're listening, I've been, mate. We're all ears. Because seriously, that woman yeah. you were talking about who's got that Alana Curry look, that was killing mm. me watching this. Who the fuck yeah. is she? I do know who she is, I'm sure. But I yeah. just kept coming back to Atara Bentoven and it can't have been her. So, <laughs> so yeah, real confusion there. There's also loads of vintage stock footage, isn't there? Oh, that thing, yeah. Because the lad's watching the telly mm. and there's clips of VE Day. Four West Ham players from the 60s celebrating a goal. Khrushchev kissing his missus. A majorette. Ronald Reagan as a cowboy, of course. A space rocket. Haile Selassie. An old car failing to jump over some other cars. Yeah, yeah. And and some 70s dance troupe. It was the law that you had to have those clips in pop videos at the time, wasn't it? Yeah. Mm. I mean, it turns out that the, most of those exact same yes. snippets were in Return of the Last Palmer 7 by mm. Madness. Mm. Yeah, so it's a great chance to have a good look at old London, both from 1978 and 1983-4, stroke four, where mm. the only difference is the quality of the film stock really isn't it it's actually quite nicely cut together in that if you didn't know marley was dead you might think he really was at the same kid's party with all the other ones i don't know yeah because there's a scene where mini marley looks through a window yeah yeah exactly like a dickensian urchin (laughs) yeah it's just a shame about the soundtrack well this song there's nothing about it that would make it look out of place between the pages of come and praise really (laughs) you know as long as you're not aware that it's actually about some other gods (laughs) and you feel it's a very deliberate move by Ireland to repackage Bob Marley and knock off the rough edges yeah we can't talk about One Love without talking about the album it was sent out there to sell Mm. which was of course legend the best of Bob Marley and the Wailers Mm. and for me it's, it's a very problematic album and I I'll explain why. Um, First of all, I just want to tell you a story that my wife told me about a place she used to work in South London. And there was was a works party that was organised by a very well-meaning older lady, Mm -hmm. a white lady, which is important here. And this party was being held in a a Caribbean restaurant. But by the way, have you noticed how everyone says Caribbean now? Yeah, fuck that, no. It used to be Caribbean when I was growing up. That's Lobo's fault. Yeah, maybe it is. There's an advert on TV now for Royal Caribbean. But it would have really fucked with uh, Billy Ocean's um, Caribbean. (laughs) Exactly. But anyway, yeah. um, So so this party going on, organised by this well-meaning older white lady where my wife used to work. um, And it was in a, a Caribbean restaurant. And and uh, um, because all the staff in the restaurant were of West Indian heritage, mm-hmm. this woman put on the Bob Marley and the Whalers legend on repeat in order to make them feel at home, <laughs> which, which made my wife cringe herself inside out. Oh. But that tells you a lot because that is what legend exists for, right? If you go into someone's house and they've only got one reggae album, mm. or perhaps even only one album by a yeah. black artist, yeah. it's going to be Legend by Bob Marley and the Wailers. They're not going to have Handsworth Revolution, or Forces of Victory, no. or Heart of the Congos, or King Tubby's Meets Rockers Up no. Town. And, you know, God knows those aren't particularly deep cuts. I mean, I'm no. barely more than a dilettante myself. But but you know what I mean? I mean, Legend has become the token reggae album to show that you're down with reggae, mm. that you're cool with it. And that album probably comes out in July when the weather's warm and you're having a barbecue. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right, and it was quite deliberately calibrated that way. Dave Robinson, the founder of Stiff Records, early of course, had been brought in 
um, to Ireland by Chris Blackwell to be the president of Island Records UK. Mm. And the first task that Blackwell gave him was to sell Marley to a mainstream audience, particularly an American yeah. mainstream yes. audience. And uh, Blackwell wanted to show Marley's militant side, but Rob Robinson disagrees. He wanted to aim Marley at not just the college kids who might get turned on by radicalism, but also at the parents of the college kids. So we're basically talking about white people. And mm. Dave Robinson later said in an interview, a quote I got here is, my vision of Bob from a marketing point of view was to sell him to the white world. So Robinson um, commissioned focus groups to survey white suburban listeners in the UK and what he found out was that most of them didn't own right. a Bob Marley album, but they didn't know why they mm, didn't own them mm. because they they were kind of theoretically on board uh -huh. with it. But so what Robinson did first of all was choose a track listing that isn't going to spook the white horses, mm. you know. So you're not hearing songs like Small Axe on there, you know, with mm. vengeful lyrics like and whosoever diggeth a pit, Lord shall fall in it. And if you are the big tree, we are the small axe sharpened to cut mm. you down. And you're not hearing things like down presser man. When you run to the rocks, the rocks will be melting. Yep. And when you run to the sea, the sea will be boiling. You know, legend pivots away from that fire and brimstone stuff. It's, it's New Testament. Mm. Yeah, isn't it? yeah, it pivots towards sappy sentiments like, don't worry about a thing because every little thing's yep. going to be all right. Have I already told the story of one of the lowest points of my life involving Ian Brown? <laughs> when I was, this is, um, oh God, it's, it's got to be getting on for 20 years ago now, I suppose. It's certainly in the noughties. Uh, when I was uh, working for The Independent on Sunday, I used to get invited to all kinds of stuff and I got invited to the NME Awards oh, yes. at Hammersmith Palais. And uh, basically the rule was, while the live act was on, you weren't allowed to buy drinks. And whoever had won, I don't know who even voted on who the um, legend was, was going to be, you know, this sort of lifetime achievement award, essentially. But it was Ian Brown. Ian Brown gets to perform three songs. And we weren't allowed to buy any drinks while he's on stage. Oh, man. I don't know if that's his yeah. rule or the venue's rule or what. But... I didn't know this. And I, I just, I thought, fuck it, Ian Brown's coming on. I'll go, I'll go and get a drink. <laughs> yeah, the so. natural <laughs> thing to do. Yeah, of course. Did they shut but the toilets as well? <laughs> Fucking hell. Yeah, probably. But I get to the bar and the steel shutters are done. I think they were, in my mind, the sh shutters were sort of being pulled down as I arrived, you know, in this sort of cinematic mm -hmm. way. Oh, Indiana Jones, did you roll under them? Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, and I, I, But I'm just stood there forlornly looking at them, like gasping for a pint. And it's bad enough that Ian Brown's on stage. And then... Brown starts honking Three Little Birds by Bob Marley. Oh, Can no. Can you imagine? And I really, really started to question my life choices <laughs> in that moment. I, um, so, yeah, not not only did uh, Dave Robinson tilt the track listing towards stuff like Three Little Birds, mm. and also Redemption Song, of course, the bad busker's favourite. Oh, God, yeah. Have No Fear for Atomic Energy. Yeah, tell that to the people of Pripyat and Fukushima Prefecture, <laughs> mm. Three Mile Island, you know. But yeah, um, he also, um, what he did was soften Marley's image, um, yeah. posthum posthumously, of course, but they chose a cover photo where Marley's looking reflective mm. and non-rebellious. Yeah. Reasoning. Yeah, yeah. And apparently, this and this is really interesting, when they tried to market the album in America, they never used the word reggae. 
gay once in the right. marketing. They just didn't use the word. Um, and the songs, of course, they Calypso. were even sequenced. <laughs> well, they, I, I don't know. They just said he's some kind of legendary Jamaican performer. They didn't use the word reggae. Yeah. Because oh. Americans wouldn't have really understood. They, or they might have been turned off or freaked out by it. Mm. Uh, they, they wanted permission to listen to it without thinking, oh, we're listening to reggae. Mm. So there's that. And, and even the way the songs were sequenced, right? It eases people in gently. Side one starts with is this love yeah. side two starts with one love people get ready mm. which which again that you know one love mostly devoid of fire and brimstone apart from that briefly let's get together to fight this holy armageddon mm. um, but apart from that it's very much oh can't we all be nice by the way it's robinson who tapped up paul mccartney to right. be in the video for one right. of them. Right. i think the presence of mccartney in the video is very important because it is oh, as if, yeah it's to say to white people, you know, come on in, white people. Yeah. The water's warm. The water's warm. It's safe. And the video also deliberately emphasizes Marley as, as a family man, as I said, mm. you know, smiling and surrounded by kids. And it, you know, it worked all this legend sold 44 million and yeah. amazingly for a reggae album, about a quarter of those in the US. Yes. Right. Mm. And the success of that album, I think has become a real problem. Right. There's a problem generally with how white people enjoy Bob Marley. Now, I'm not going to presume or explain or describe how black people feel about Bob Marley and the Wailers. That's really not for me to say. But I know how white people feel about Bob Marley and the Wailers because, by and large, they cherry-pick. They just want to hear the stuff that basically gives off the vibe of can't we all just be nice to each other? You know, as as if a a bit of stoned skanking to jam in is going to erase 500 years of slavery (laughs) and colonisation. You know, and sadly, it's easy for them to do that because Marley did write plenty of can't we all just be nice bollocks did, yeah. right yeah, the, yeah. the sort of material that's basically John Lennon's Imagine with a reggae beat and One Love is perhaps the most emblematic of that Bob Marley but there's another Bob Marley who was a radical and a revolutionary yeah. and a black nationalist who wanted all the peoples of the African diaspora to return to Africa and so on mm. why audiences by and large don't want to hear that they don't want anything to make them feel uncomfortable uh, or to remind them that the luxury they enjoy the splendor of the grand civic buildings in their city centers is directly due to the theft and rape and murder and enslavement that brought bob marley's ancestors to jamaica in the first place mm. they just want to hear one love it was named song of the millennium by the bbc yes. from 1999 yeah. for fuck's sake and because of this airbrushing and simplifying of Marley's complex persona, he's become an icon in the worst sense. He's uh, a high contrast black and white image on a cheap nylon flag, like Che Guevara, superimposed onto a red, gold and green raster flag, yeah, yeah, yeah. with with a marijuana leaf, to be blue tacked to the living room walls of students and stoners. And I know what I'm talking about. I live in Brighton. I'm surrounded (laughs) by these coats, right? Now, obviously, I don't want anyone to uh, misunderstand what I'm saying. Obviously, Bob Marley is fucking brilliant. Yes. But the best favour that white people can do to Bob Marley is to stop listening to him and let black people have him back. Well, yeah. Mm. The thing is, in a weird way, I think legend almost put me off reggae nearly. And songs like this... You know, or also what almost put me off. Legend, as Simon said, it's a very telling, very cynical and selective collection that that definitely tries to marginalise and edge out Bob's most sort of interesting work and propound this view of him as just this positive-minded, liberal, sort of come-one-come-all reggae ambassador. Um, and when you look at the track listing, yeah, what what we got? We've got one track of Catch a Fire. Because yeah. any other track might reveal, you know, that Peter Tosh and Bunny <laughs> Whaler were better singers for a start off. We've yes. got nothing off Natty Dread 
No. We've got the likes of, like Simon said, Three Little Birds and Redemption Song and Satisfy My Soul and One Love. You, we don't get 400 Years or Stop That Train or Slave Driver or anything mm. that might suggest, actually, that Marley was at his best in collaboration with other equally determined be- people rather than being this figurehead, this international face of reggae that, that you know, Chris Blackwell and, and himself turned himself into. And I, I've been writing a piece this week, actually, about a Lee Scratch Perry album from the mid-80s. And I was digging deep into some interviews from the late 70s and early 80s. And um, I was reading a brilliant quote. Max Romeo talked about how so many reggae artists in the late 70s, they found their work just sacrificed on the altar of Bob. You know what I mean? Really? So people like the Congos and people like Max Romeo, they had sort of a hit album, which maybe, you know, you, you could say that Bob Marley uh, raising reggae's profile might have had a part of that. But when it came to the second album, no, I didn't really want it and didn't really put him out properly because it was all about Bob. And all you get on yeah. Legend is that smooth side of Bob, the side that basically says to white audiences and American audiences, you know, hey, you don't have to decode this music or interpret it. Just sink a beer, have a joint, feel the spiritual yeah, yeah. communion with these essential. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and then feel and, the spiritual some commu- jerk chicken. Some jerk chicken, yes, of course, from Turtle Bay, and yeah, and fi- and fi- you know, feel that spiritual connection with with these essentially kind of totally tropical ideas, if you like. Yeah. Yes. And, and crucially, legends all you need. Don't worry about anything else. Certainly, don't w- worry, you know, about what's actually happening in Jamaican music right now. In the early eighties, you know, don't worry about Barrington Levy or Yellowman or Ecomouse. This will do you. Yeah. The general perception was because Ireland had lumped so heavily on Bob Marley and the Whalers, mm. and Bob Marley in particular, reggae was seen as a spent force the minute Marley died. Yeah, absolutely. And that's what happens when you create a messianic star like that. And mm. and that star goes. What's not being yeah. pushed on legend is the Marley of, you know, catch a fire and arms like that political. And yeah. also, you know, he wasn't just pretty. He was the pretty boy frontman of one of the tightest, greatest bands ever. You know, the Whalers. Mm. By mm. now, by this time, the Whalers are clearly, you know, just background. Bob's the messianic star. I think, to be honest with you, he's a participant in this. He started believing his own hype at the One Love concert, getting Manly and Sega to shake hands and it's no accident yeah. that you know that kind of messianic mantle passes on to the likes of Bono and, and Gelder yes. throughout the yeah, 80s yeah. you know and that sentiment of one love you know this kind of why can't we all get along thing I can I can only imagine what Peter Tosh thought of that or you know and, and mm. this video yeah just I just, bet he felt like bombing a church <laughs> <laughs> probably but like I say you know this video in 1984 which not only is the year the Scarman report comes out it's also the year when I think about what's going on in British reggae for instance you've got saxon sound happening yeah. and smiley culture starting to make stuff you know mm-hmm. entirely mm-hmm. different rules for reggae in the uk and in jamaica one yeah. love just just isn't you know really it's not what's going on to be honest with you but no. as simon has so so brilliantly pointed out yeah it's a tokenistic kind of buy this that's reggae sorted you don't need to bother with anything else or what's happening contemporaneously you know this yeah. is it and the basic underlying messages yeah um, it's the totally tropical taste. Yes. <laughs> what we're seeing with Legend is is pop Marley, isn't it? What Ireland are doing here, it, it's no repackaging job of people like Nick Drake, mm. an artist who's been forgotten about for two decades. Mm. You know, 
Bob Marley was a, a living, breathing entity in the British charts in the late 70s. He was, he's even appeared in the top of the pop studio a time or two. You know, people yeah. know about him. Oh, yeah. Look, the hits have to be on there. Don't get me wrong. Mm. I didn't know any of that stuff that Simon was saying about, you know, the decisions being made about this and the way to portray yeah. him and the, way, and, and, and the way he's portrayed on the sleeve. But, you know, there, there could have been a great posthumous collection of Marley, which would have actually reflected not just kind of white experience of Marley and what white people wanted to hear about Marley, but black experience in Marley for an awful lot of West Indian Jamaican people in Britain. Yeah, Marley was something they grew up on. Yeah. You know, and, and those early albums, so utterly neglected by legend, that they're, they're mm. formative biblical documents. I mean, um, right. to completely cast the black experience of Marley aside and just go for this kind of, that these are the hits and also these songs you'll get along with. There's nothing that will make you stop and think for a moment here. That's a very deliberate strategy. Mm. I don't actually hold any enmity towards Bob Marley. You know, he had some messianic delusions towards the end, I, I would say. But I mm. think he made some some great great music you know and yeah. looking back into his history i mean even beyond the 70s when he's you know in the 60s some of the singles he's making and being part of it are fucking astonishing yes he's ill served hugely by this reductive viewpoint that legend cast upon him yeah. um, that unfortunately still adheres to this day I, I think you know he he's still a signifier of of this kind of ease um, this lilt feel um, but you know his music is intensely more problematic than that mm. yeah and, and I, I do think that they could give him a double vinyl yeah you know like yeah. Brian Ferry and Roxy Music around the same time I think it was yeah and T-Rex yeah yeah yeah, yeah. why not um, it's a really interesting point Neil made there actually about uh, the way that sort of uh, contemporary British reggae was being treated and uh, there were hit singles but it was just usually hit singles so you know somebody like Smiley Culture um, comes through and you know, he'll, he'll be allowed to have one hit, but there's no investment in him yeah, it's seen as, as a an novelty artist. hit, isn't it? Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. On the lighter side, Lover's Rock stuff like, you know, Sophie George or uh, Boris Gardner and stuff like that. You, you do get these one-off records in, in the UK charts, but there is no kind of investment, and I mean that in the financial sense, but also kind of um, intellectually or emotionally, in the idea of reggae and reggae artists being artists yeah mm. yeah they're not just people who turn up with a hit every now and then and what's mad is it's not so bizarre that it wouldn't be marketable to a white audience when i think about the people yeah. involved in saxon sounds you know ash banton and, and and smiley these people are stars man and the way that yeah. they talk they look amazing their music's amazing and the lyrics are amazing it really wouldn't have taken that much stretch to try and market this stuff but no get mm. a single then leave it alone leave it alone we yeah. don't really understand it don't know what to do with it and of course all of this I guess, essentially stems from the institutional racism of the music business at the time. The fact that mm. it, these people in A&R positions, the people who decide this shit, are almost uniformly white blokes who don't really understand what they're you know, getting into, in a sense. I mean, we've had this before with Elvis, and particularly with John Lennon. I mean, when Elvis died, he was immediately repackaged as a bit younger and less fat, Mm, mm. Lenin just basically had his rough edges and awkward politics knocked off and yeah. Ireland are doing very similar here. They're Leninizing Bob Marley or put it in a more Simpsons way, they've de-rasticized him by ten <laughs> percent. Yeah. And it's lucrative, don't get me wrong, it's probably a wise business decision. Well, definitely. Because the thing is, these are all fucking amazing pop songs. They are, but you know what? I can't listen to Legend. Can't look at it. I own it, you that see. That signifier, that tokenistic tick off. <laughs> that's what it 
sums up to me. I can't put it on because I feel like I'm committing a hate crime. If I <laughs> <laughs> you know I've I mean? got it in my record collection, but only because I nicked it off my sister. Yeah. As mentioned before, for some bizarre reason, she wrote Trey Lobb's blood clot on Bob Marley's forehead. <laughs> Amazing. Mm. By spring of 1984, we're at the absolute midpoint between UB40 turning into Jar Waddy Wadi mm. and Purcell running three little birds in an advert. Yeah. See, this is it. The after effect. Yeah. I mean, I, d- I don't know if, if Blackwell and Robinson thought beyond the bottom line when it came to the after effects of Legend. Maybe maybe they just wanted to make as much money as they possibly could. But I would like to think that there was at least some kind of vague good intention, particularly given that all the Blackwell had done historically for reggae mm. and, and for Jamaican artists. Even though he's a controversial figure, I know that. Yeah. Chris Whitewurst. Right, yeah. According to Peter Tosh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, I, you know, uh, Lee, Lee Scratch Perry's had some things to say yeah. about him. And, oh, you I know, can imagine. Uh, yeah, yeah. But considering that I, I do at least believe that Blackwell was sincerely, that he sincerely cared about reggae, maybe on some level he hoped that legend would kind of have a Trojan horse effect or, or a battering yeah, ram effect, just good. kick the door down. Yeah, yeah, tro- yeah exactly. Uh, and pave the way for other reggae artists. But it just, for one reason or another, it didn't seem to happen, even with other island... You know, it's not as if Gregory Isaac suddenly became yeah. a massive breakthrough star on the back of this or something. Do you know what I mean? Mm. They let the brand leader win. Um, and yeah. that's always dangerous. And he was conveniently dead, yeah. yeah. But Bob Molly had a fucking huge back catalogue of stuff that b- b- people like me wouldn't have heard of. I get that, Al, but you were the sort of listener who would listen to, say, Legend. Say if Legend was the first thing by, you know, first that Bob Marley album you had, you would have dug back. You would have gone backwards. Mm. For I think for yeah. the vast majority of the people who bought Legend, that was that with reggae. Um, yeah. And if they wanted to conjure that vibe, they'd put that album on. And they wouldn't investigate mm. the, the degrees and the shade, as I'm sure you did, you know. And, and this mm. is the problem with a document like that. The thing is with Legend, did it have to all be like that? Could they not have squeezed in something, you know, just some sort of taint of his past, which was actually mm. fascinating? You know, those first few Wayless yeah. albums, they're fucking amazing. And, yes, you know, Chris Blackwell's got a lot to answer for, don't get me wrong, but actually the way he makes rock and reggae meet in some of those early records it's thrillingly exciting and it's not reflected mm. on legend which is a real shame i think after legend comes out i, I encounter people in my life who just say oh, i don't like reggae and i think what mm. they mean is they don't like this kind of reggae and if they yeah. if they mm. knew just exactly what a an amazing because you know jamaica is for its size i think it's probably the most astonishing place in pop history in terms of what's yeah, created yeah. you know yeah, and, yeah. and punch as well above absolutely yeah perhaps more than anywhere else and and it's ill served by legend being the main mm. reggae album that people own i mean as simon mentioned that you know a, a lot of people it'll be the only reggae album there and the only black album they own actually i mean i, I mm. say it again as i said in a piece for the quietest about reggae in 1976 you know the rolling stone top 500 list contains one reggae album and it's legend by bob marley so you know that's supposedly a survey of the 500 greatest albums ever made you know what i mean it's not bob's fault perhaps it's maybe not even legend itself's fault but but the way it has been used is ruinous in an interview last year don letts himself said in the 21st century bob marley has been somewhat castrated what did he do in this video (laughs) <laughs> do you think he's got some uh, he's got his hands on the shears I like Don Letts and obviously he's a very important figure as well very influential yeah he's done, he's done so many amazing things so I am reluctant to blame him for the wider phenomenon of what happened with Marley 
But yeah, this this doesn't help, does no. it? Another celebrity appearance in the video is, uh, of course, musical youth who are right at the front of the throng. Yeah. I wonder what they'd be thinking because they're kind of like fading from the scene at the moment, aren't they? Yeah, maybe they they were hoping that the release of this might give them a shot in the arm and yeah, yeah maybe get them back. Or, or maybe they were in the crowd hiding from that truant officer <laughs> in the video <laughs> for Pass the Dodgy, which of course was directed by Don yeah, Letts. Yeah. Don Letts, yeah. <laughs> Obvious question, chaps. If Bob Marley had lived, what would his 80s have been like? Ooh. It's interesting. Would he have embraced things like dancehall, you know, and more electronic I sound? Sus- mm. I suspect not. I mean, I think he'd end up collaborating with British, British reggae artists, but, you know, McCartney and all that lot would be lining up to work with him. So he, oh, he yeah. might have just entered kind of rock aristocracy or reggae aristocracy, yeah. as it were. Would Marley have done Live Aid? Oh, of, yeah, absolutely. fucking yeah, he'd yeah, have I done reckon. Live Aid. Do you reckon? Why would he not have done Live Aid? Maybe he would have seen through it. Well, it, and it, said, you, you can't just chuck money at Ethiopia. You've got to, yeah, but you've got to do more than a that. A handshake mate. between Michael Manley and Edward Seeger isn't going to solve Jamaica's civil war problems in 78, but he still creates mm. that gesture and it's a meaningless gesture. It's good though. It's a really good it's picture. It's a great picture, but I recreated that. <laughs> when I did a documentary for uh, BBC East Midlands about the rivalry between Derby County and Nottingham Forest. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, I got Rame, who's the Derby County mascot, who's a big ram, and mm. uh, Forest mascot at the time, who was Robin Hood. And I, I linked their hands together and, and put my own hand out in front, just like Bob Marley <laughs> in that picture. Amazing. Look, look, it's a lovely image of the unifying power of music and all that, mm. but... I, I taught a module last year right, called Events in Context where I looked at important gigs and I was teaching mm. this module and one of my students was like a very, very mature student. He was in his late 50s, early 60s, mm. who was from Jamaica. And, you know, I, I did a lesson about that precise concert, the One Love concert. He said, look, how this was portrayed is complete bullshit. Mm. Um, for starters, a lot of the people in not only the musicians. I mean, we know about Peter Tosh not exactly behaving himself that day Mm. and and various people having problems with what was going on. But he said out in Kingston after this concert, it wasn't, oh, everything's all together. It was a brief little holiday, if you like. But of course, straight away, the violence between streets just continues. Marley is able to then, and perhaps Ireland and Chris Blackwell are able to use that incident as, you know, some sort of uh, proof of of his messianic status. And I really do think it has a dangerous effect in the 80s when it comes to people like Bono and Geldof thinking that they can can change the world. I mean, I'd argue there's a direct line from that concert to live aid mm. um you maybe know, he would have done the same thing with reagan and chinenko <laughs> or or margaret thatcher and arthur scargill <laughs> yeah or um, yeah or margaret thatcher and, and colonel mengistu or something i mm. I, I i i don't know <laughs> i don't know but i think he wouldn't have been able to resist that uh playing yeah. live aid yeah. oh he would have fucking Speaking killed of, it though wouldn't he yeah he would have been great mm. maybe yeah he'd have been he'd been the, the, the freddie mercury i don't know <laughs> Speaking of Live Aid, one fact I found out recently, and this is from listening to um, the Rock on Tours podcast, which is um, mm. Gary Kemp and Guy Pratt. Yeah. Um, uh, it's it's about Bob Geldof, because Geldof was on there. Well, actually, it's from Bob Geldof. He, he, was, he was on there, and he, he's a man not devoid of ego, shall we say. And, you know, <laughs> he's, he, he certainly has... Um, uh, a, a not exactly underplayed uh, view of his own role in uh, rock history. But uh, one story he told is that uh, when the whole Live Aid thing was going on, it was, I guess it was in the period between Band Aid and Live Aid, mm. is that he was in conversation with David Bowie and Mick Jagger 
about you know doing a a, a charity raising duet mm. and Bowie originally wanted to do One Love with Mick Jagger fucking oh hell yeah <laughs> David Bowie Mick oh Jagger God. One Love people get ready and it South was South America <laughs> It was Geldof who persuaded them to do Dancing in the Street instead. But if Bowie oh. and Jagger had done One Love, oh, I mean, God knows what accent they'd have done. Oh, yeah, and, you know, maybe, you know, maybe it would have changed history and the people wouldn't now think so harshly of Spies Like Us, Paul McCartney's uh, yeah, yeah. Meet Free Mondays rap. You can do it right now, please. Mm, I mean, know, Bowie, Bowie a- hasn't got form, but Jagger has because Cherry Baby off, off uh, ah. Black and Blue. Yes. He's got some dreadful cod reggae accent oh. going on there, so. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Fuck. So the following week, One Love soared 13 places to number nine, and two weeks later made it up to number five, its highest position. By that time, Legend had entered the LP chart at number one and stayed there for 12 weeks. The LP would sell well over 25 million copies worldwide, over 3.4 million copies in the UK, and has been in the British Top 100 LP chart for a combined total of 19 and a half years. The follow-up, Waiting in Vain, got to number 31 in July this year, and Ireland rounded off 1984 with Could You Be Loved getting to number 71 in December. When Three Little Birds only got to number 76 in July of 1985, despite or because of it being known as the personal music, (laughs) Ireland gave up on releasing Marley singles, but in 1992, while preparing the box set Songs of Freedom, they dug out an unreleased track from the early 70s called Iron Lion's Iron, remastered it and put it out as a single, which got to number five in October of that year. don't care what you say about legend anything that gets waiting in vain back in the charts is all right with me that's a fucking tune and i will be all right let's get together and be all right bob marley and one love okay it's time for janice long solo happy birthday to you happy, happy birthday, birthday to, to, to you roger taylor birthday, live roger taylor. on a thursday <laughs> time of the pops duran duran and replay <laughs> Bates and Janice, now reunited, are hanging over some surprisingly tatty railings for stupid streamers. Janice attempts to sing Happy Birthday to one of the members of the next band, but Bates gets in the way with a time check. She slaps his arm jovially, but I reckon she meant it. Yes. Um, and uh, combined with the long black gloves, mm. it made me think of Russell Harty being slapped by Grace Jones. Um, later, of course, to be the baddie in a Duran Duran video and the guest scary lady on an Arcadia single, of course. Mm. That band, Duran Duran, that single... The Reflex. We last chanced upon Duran Duran in chart music number 56 when they were trotting around the winner's circle in the 1983 Christmas special with their first number one, Is There Something I Should Know? Since then, they've been playing the second leg of the Sing Blue Silver Tour, playing seven dates in Japan, six in Canada and 45 in America. That tour finished last week, and they've just put out this, their 11th single. 
It's the follow-up to New Moon on Monday, which only got to number nine for two weeks in February, and is the third single from the LP, Seven and the Ragged Tiger. It was supposed to be the lead-off single back in October of 1983, but EMI put their foot down and Union of the Snake went out first. It's been extensively remixed by Nile Rodgers and was put out a fortnight ago, and this week it smashed into the chart at number five, this week's highest new entry. And although there's a video with the band playing in Toronto before they drown the audience with a computerised waterfall, here they are, standing among the top of the Pops audience like actual human beings Mm. for their first studio appearance on the Pops in 13 months. And you've got to say, it's a very inauspicious start to their return, isn't it? The You know, the return of the biggest band in the country right now, mark you. Uh, because we see Simon Le Bon handing a cup of something to a runner mm. yeah. and fucking up the miming yeah, right yeah. at the beginning. And also, did you notice that the graphics department have got this single down as this week's number two? Ah. Tut, tut, tut. It is a big moment, them coming back. Yeah. And it seems really odd. I mean, you know, the juxtapositions that Top of the Pops throws up. It seems really odd now, from our vantage point, to recall that this existed in the same pop time as the Smiths. Mm, Because one seems so redolent of something perhaps already passing and the other so redolent of what's ahead. But I remember there being massive anticipation for this, as there was for every Duran single, Mm. because the singles were an event. It was actually becoming easier to get excited about the singles with their attendant videos than the albums anymore. Seven and the Ragged Tiger was a bit of a disappointment round our way. Mm. Uh, We we were a Rio house, I guess. (laughs) Uh, We we, we absolutely came that album. Maybe it was just because my big sister was moving on for the pop stuff a bit. But Seven and the Ragged Tiger it was a bit of a disappointment and not just because of its sleeves strange visual proximity to culture clubs color by numbers it's yeah. like same sleeve designer isn't it and and right yeah assorted images i think there's a vague progness to Duran that as Brummies was always bubbling under the surface and that's what <laughs> Seven and the Ragged Tiger seem, seem to be for me. Mm. I hadn't been grabbed by Union of the Snake and New Moon and Monday because you want a Duran single really to hit you with a kind of biff bang power. The reflex got me more than those but pretty soon I started wondering even as a 12 year old sort of do I like this? What, what am I listening to? Is this a song mm. Or just the procession of kind of gimmicks and weird sounds. It was like this yeah. thing you entered with a big grin on your face. And initially you were mad excited about it. But once you're in there, it started to seem ever so fragile. And, and the grin you had on your face started feeling a bit a bit forced. And by the time mm. I'd seen the aforementioned video about, you know, replete with that relaxed style cum tsunami um, going <laughs> out the crowd that turns into just a bucket of water... I mean, that was another thing, because Relax is in the charts, and this is called Reflex. I know it's a daft little thing, but you notice these things when you're kids. Two records Mm. starting with R, ending in X, from big bands. The video seemed to cement this idea that Duran were now an an international concern. And I I I was becoming increasingly disbelieving, because the thing is with the Reflex, it's gimmicks wore off pretty quickly and dated pretty quickly to the point yeah where the best bit of the record you, you know what i'm gonna say it's when those uh why i i i is that jordan yes. chorus 
Yeah, and that was why it wasn't the lead-off single, because yeah. the label didn't like that. I think that's crazy. Yeah. It's clearly the lead-off single, or should have been the lead-off single. It's the hookiest thing in the whole single, isn't it? Well, no, the hookiest thing is that sound of Metal Mickey dropping his guts after Yes! <laughs> Which apparently is Andy Taylor saying, yeah. You've had a bad atomic gargle blaster yeah, yeah, there, yeah. mate. For, <laughs> yeah. But for me, Duran, as a kid, they'd gone from making this kind of classic Japan-influenced new romantic dance pop to kind of mullet-headed going for the rock market within about 12 months yeah so the first album's dead solid seven and the ragged tiger for me anyway was weak i must reinvestigate that album though maybe i'll grown into it by now mm. but um they had become already by now i think not really an album's band in a sense the the, the singles were always an event you know wild yeah. boys becomes an event view to a kill becomes an event yeah but you know the live album arena just continued this kind of downward trend the first mm. half of their career album band second half singles band their second number one is The Reflex. It's their biggest British hit. But yeah. you can't help feeling their careers are on a bit of a downturn. Yeah. Um, I mean, at the time, I didn't... Around about this point, Duran Duran were that band where you thought, oh, fucking hell, they're going to be around forever. Yeah. They're yeah. not going to go away, and I'm going to be 50, and they're going to be celebrating their 120th number one. <laughs> well, to be fair, right, this performance is actually pretty good. I know Le Bon oh, yeah, yeah, up yeah. at the beginning. I think one thing I can't believe I didn't notice at the time was just fucking hell, how much was David Bowie continuing to exert an effect on people? It, mm. It's pretty blatant how the Berlin period affected early 80s UK pop, but I really do think yeah. Let's Dance is having an effect yes. here. There's this kind of international territory mm. marking going on. Um, mm. And that focus on kind of danceability and rhythm means that the most memorable touches of the song are the percussive touches, the steel drums and the wood blocks and, and the vocal stuff, uh, the flex, flex, yeah. flex, 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 and all that. But that's <laughs> the trouble for me. The, 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 the trouble with the reef is it's a continuous stream of kind of three second hooks that doesn't quite coalesce into a song it's like non sequitur pop yeah time doesn't really matter when you're in this song it, you, you can kind of turn it on at any point mm. there are big Duran moments in this era is there something I should know I think it's, it's one of those wild boys is another one and this is one of them mm. but you know crucially we're watching the young ones we're seeing Rick Mayle sitting on a turntable singing <laughs> this pretending to be a Duran Duran record and people yes. are starting to take the piss a lot allow me to return to this week's melody maker chaps and and the singles page in particular which was handled by colin irwin and this very single came up right he writes at a time of day when most righteous souls are tucked up in bed with agatha christie certain public houses around these parts have shuddered to the sound of melody maker personnel debating the rather dubious merits of this band and blatant attempts at assassination have been attempted on this writer following his loudly voiced theory that by the end of this year Duran Duran won't mean a light in Britain. Perhaps already alarmed by the relative failure of their last single, New Moon on Monday, these Duran persons have turned to Niall Rogers to remix this track, presumably to give them the character they so patently failed to engender themselves. Rogers does fine. There's a new zest in the music and lots of those damn snazzy technical ploys producers are famous for. But this ain't David Bowie. And Duran Duran need more than studio trickery to restore their flagging impotence to a decent song. No matter how much mass hysteria and tribal devotion they may inspire, there comes a time in every band's life when they've got to put up with the goods on record. Duran Duran badly need it now, but this isn't it. And frankly, they seem incapable of achieving it. Oh, gosh. 
This idea that Duran Duran were going off the boil. Yeah, well, the chart stats don't lie. This was their equal biggest hit. I think it was their biggest selling single, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, I, I think uh, Newman and Monday was a disappointment in that it only got to number nine mm. and all of that. But you got that with a lot of bands, I think, that they were still allowed to be perceived as huge bands mm. and not every single had to be top three. Yeah. Because singles came thick and fast, and albums were just rinsed to death and just milked for for loads of singles and stuff like that. Mm. So, yeah, I, I didn't really perceive it as much of a kind of wobble in their career. Mm. thing with Duran is, right, I love Duran Duran more than I can really justify. I love the existence of them more than I love sitting down and listening to their music. If I'm sitting down and listening to music yeah. kind of broadly of that type and from that time, it's more likely to be... The Human yeah. League, or Soft Cell, or or even Visage, but I just love them mm. for for being Duran Duran, and I know all the arguments against them, and I know people think they're Japan for dummies, but in a way, that's exactly the point, and I really value mm. that. I value the fact that they were pretty boy pinups, and they wrote strange, mm. cryptic lyrics and made weird, arty videos. They were Wham and Japan at the same time. Jawam, <laughs> yeah, because Duran occupied the space in British pop culture that would later be occupied by Take That or Boyzone or Westlife or One Direction, who are all boring as fuck, Mm. right? You didn't get The Wanted or JLS doing songs called Union of the Snake or albums called Seven and the Ragged Tiger Mm. or making videos with weird lizard-headed people in pools of fire, (laughs) you know, or putting out books of their own Polaroids, you know. I've interviewed Duran a few times and they're really great and they're really self-aware about their own ridiculousness. Mm. But also I think they're very aware of what's good about them. They're aware of why they're great. Because Duran, for me, they are the fizz in the champagne of 80s pop. That's what they are. If you listen to Hungry Like the Wolf, Mm. those kind of super fast arpeggios of Nick Rhodes synthesizer literally sound like champagne bubbles to me. Mm. And I guess I feel about them the same way that a lot of people feel about Andrew Ridgely you know that he's living the good life out there for the rest of us (laughs) I I once put it to Duran Duran that being in Duran Duran looked like the most fun it's possible to Mm, have in a band but they reckon that being in the Rolling Stones looked like even better fun (laughs) so I suppose the the grass is always greener Mm. the thing with this performance on top of the pops it's a rare case where I felt shortchanged by seeing the band in the studio. Yeah. Mm. You know, normally uh, if, if a video's on, you think, oh, God, well, they couldn't be bothered to turn up. I don't want to see Duran in the studio. They're a band who exist in the imagination on video. Mm. And mm. yeah, Neil's talked about it. And I, I know the Reflex video is mostly a performance one, but there is that huge pixel waterfall, that cum <laughs> shot that Neil talks about <laughs> that um, explodes from the screens over the heads of the audience. And I want to see that. Instead, yeah. we get one cheap domestic television behind the drum kit, like a, a fucking Sony Trinitron or something, right? Yeah. And uh, I guess it might be a, a, a smart-ass sort of reference by the production crew to the lyrics. Mm. Sometimes I think the reflex is just absolute bollocks lyrically. <laughs> but then, but then <laughs> They you see, say it's absolute bollocks lyrically. Yeah, but you see a bit like this and you think it's actually a really acutely perceptive description of showbiz cocaine addiction. Definitely. Where right. it goes... I'm on a ride and I want to get off, but they won't slow down the roundabout. I sold the Renoir and the TV set. Don't want to be around when this gets out. I think there's something to that, you know. That's a great couplet, that last line. And and like you said, Simon, imagine take that right in a line like that. Not in a million years. No, no, no. no. And uh, I think given that I've grudgingly accepted we're not seeing the video, I think they look 
pretty fucking great in their individual ways. Oh, yes. So Le Bon, he's got that kind of alpha male lead singer swagger all the time. That's pretty mm. much why they hired him. When they first met him, he was so cocky, just the way he walked up to them in a pair of, I think, bright red trousers. And they were like, what the fuck's this guy doing? They just thought, you know, he, he's got it. He's confidence incarnate, totally. He's got that alpha male lead singer swagger. But his shirt, right? His shirt, it's, I think it's sort of red, white, black and mm. grey or something. Yeah. It's got so many competing diagonals on it. <laughs> um, it looks like dazzle ships. It looks like yes. right. he could have sailed his yacht, Drum, through the Battle of Jutland, and he'd have been fine, right? And then you've got John. John is the most rock star in capital letters, obviously, mm. you know. Mm. Um, and I love how he reinvented himself. Do you know the whole thing about Nigel with him? Go on. Well, Nigel's his real name, right, right for yeah, a start. Yeah. And he sees Nigel as being an entirely different person to John Taylor. Because mm. when he was Nigel... He was bullied at school, he mm-hmm. he was spotty and he wore glasses and he was a bit geeky and he just wasn't a sexy guy, he was an ugly duckling. Mm. Um, and then he thought, no, you know what, fuck that. And he basically completely gave himself a makeover, restyled himself and became John Taylor, you know, maybe the most fancied man on earth mm. at various points in the 80s. Mm. And yeah, he's there with his fucking shoulder pads or if he's not wearing shoulder pads, he wears his shoulders as if they're padded, yes. just the way he moves. Um, it's a great bit where, because it, it's balloon time at Top of the Pops, a blue balloon sails towards him and he just sort of looks at it with kind of amused curiosity like he's he's never seen one before. <laughs> he's just fucking great, exuding charisma and sex on stage. Roger, the drummer, who, by the way, when I interviewed them, was, was kind of the nicest, just surprisingly down to earth, as Limmy would say. He was the one my sister fancied the most by the way was he yeah. uh, he's well he's a he's a he's a sort of classically good-looking is, hunky yeah. male and he's not kind of puffy in the way that would put some people off because that's the word that would be used in the playgrounds oh you you like those puffs duran duran yeah in this performance he has got a hell of a lot of blusher on his cheekbones and mm. i don't know if you notice roger is never not pouting even during the, the really <laughs> tricky drum fills and there's there's some you know pretty fancy percussion going on in this track but yeah. he, he knows what exact angle to sort of tilt his head he knows where the camera is. Yeah. He's not going to look at the camera, but he knows where the camera is. Does know how to mind playing the drums, though, in this <laughs> Yeah, Calling mind drumming. <laughs> or at least a very uncharitable camera angle, but, which would not yeah. have gone unnoticed by the playground detractors. But that happens no. a few times with the whole band. I find the guitarists mm. don't quite know what to do sometimes because the, the track is so synthetic. And full it's of so this. pieced together, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, it's yeah. pieced together. So possibly until they toured it, they probably hadn't played it as a whole thing yeah, yeah, very yeah. often. Yeah. Um, I even think Andy looks all right, because Andy was always the last one to get picked at games, if you like, of, of Duran in terms of <laughs> fancy ability. Do you know what I mean? Um, but even he looks okay. He's got this big Japanese jacket with Japanese symbols all over it. He's got a full mullet, hasn't he? He's got the full mm. Nino Ferretto slash Gaz oh, Top yes. mullet going on. But obviously my favourite one, my man crush, is Nick Rhodes, <laughs> right? <laughs> Nick Rhodes in this, he looks beautiful. Yeah, beautiful. Beautiful. Nick Rhodes has got beautiful breath. Um, yes. What he looks like... <laughs> he, Blue he looks, tulip Simon Rhodes. <laughs> yes. Nick Rhodes in this performance looks like Life on Mars Bowie in his away kit. 
Mm, right because yes. Life on Mars Bowie is pale blue yeah, and yeah. yeah Nick Rhodes has sort of flipped the colours around uh, in that beautiful red sort of military looking suit jacket mm. he's got on um, and a nice neat tie underneath it just the slightest hint of a mullet in the hair not like yeah. a proper Andy Taylor mullet just a no. just a sort of tasteful little Bowie mullet he just got married in a pink bolero jacket and matching top hat hasn't he <laughs> What a fucking legend. Mm. Yeah, I, I love him, man. Uh, yeah, of, of all the members of Duran, he is the most Duran of all of them. Yes. he's. I, I think, and he he is aware of his own absurdity in many, many ways, and he plays up to mm. it. And uh, when I when I interviewed him, I, I asked him about the fact that, you know, you, you must be aware there's a little bit of a cult of Nick Rhodes around you. And he kind of, a, li- a little kind of smirk played around his lips. He's aware of that. He You know, mm. he's a little bit of a sort of self-created caricature. And I, I, I absolutely adore that about him. But the first time I met him, uh, it wasn't for an interview. And I kind of embarrassed myself because oh, no. I got overexcited. Yeah, it was, um, <laughs> it was, it was at a, um, Duran Duran gig at Birmingham City Stadium, St. Andrews. Mm. Uh, it was in the, in the noughties when they were making one of their big comebacks. I, th- I think mm. it was the, the time that, that all five of them had got back together. So it felt like a right. proper comeback, right? And, you know, big enough for them to be playing um, stadiums. So um, there was a party afterwards and it was in the clubhouse of Birmingham City FC. There were members of Duran Duran walking about and I was sort of playing it cool because I didn't want to sort of be the first person to go over and bother them. But I thought, <laughs> oh, maybe, I'll, maybe I'll talk to them at some point. So I just sort of uh, kept my distance for a bit and ha- had a few drinks. But then, because I'd had so many drinks, I needed to go to the toilet, and it was oh, down no. some. St- oh no, it's it's not going where you think it's going. Don't worry about that. It's not a Bruce Foxton letter. It's is not it? a Bruce. It's not a Bruce Foxton letter. Oh dear God! But yeah, um, <laughs> but I, I I had some liquids to offload. Have it? Uh, no, not in that way. Um, you know, have, having drunk so much. Uh, and then when I came back, and it was down the stairs to these toilets, when I came back out of the stairs, I'm sort of stumbling back up the stairs, and Nick Rhodes has come the other way. And I sort of glance up, and he's pretty much right in front of me before I know it. And um, I didn't have time to compose myself. or oh. to, And I just said, without almost any gaps between the words, hello, Nick Rhodes, like that. <laughs> hello, Nick Rhodes. Not even hello, Nick. Or, oh, hello. Hello, Nick Rhodes. Like that. Like like Nick Rhodes is this kind of singular entity. Hello, Nick Rhodes. <laughs> and I, I just, uh, immediately I done it. I just, oh, fuck, fuck, fuck. But he just kind of laughed and walked past me. <laughs> and I, I think I think he laughed in a kind of forgiving, charitable way of like, no. yeah. It's, it's, like, it's like, yeah, I get it. I'm Nick Rhodes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I get that all the time. People just blurting out, hello, Nick Rhodes at me. Yeah, I fucking love Nick Rhodes. He's, he's, he's the best one. But, um, the song... Yeah, I mean, the Nile Rodgers remix, imagine the cocaine going around when that was going on, by the way. What's the difference between the remix and the original? Because I've never heard the original. When you hear it, the album one, you, you do feel it's a bit flat and it needs a bit of jazzing up. What I think mm. he brought to it, um, I interviewed Trevor Horn once and, and I asked him about Owner of a Lonely Heart mm. by mm-hmm. Yes that he was involved in, obviously. And he said that that was the best whiz-bang record he ever made. And mm. I understood exactly what he meant. Yeah. Yeah. It's all his production tricks thrown in at once, and it's brilliant on that basis. And I think that's pretty much what Nile Rogers did. And yeah, mm. Neil's right. It's a load of trickery in search of a song. But I don't mind that. It's a great record rather than a great song. Yeah, It's all about yeah, the record. Yeah. And I really think it, it works on that basis. It is exciting. You don't want to analyse it too much. You don't want to think too much about what the lyrics are. But that's always the case with Duran. Nearly always the case with Duran. Mm. I even really like the B-side. I don't know if you heard it. It was um, a live recording of Steve Harley and Cockney Rebels' Make Me Smile. Yeah. Yeah. And um, um, that, they, they brought the same feel to it. That kind of brio, that kind of exuberance 
to make me smile that they bring to their own material. It's got these kind of triumphant flourishes between every line. This mm. these kind of synth swooshes and uh, Andy Taylor get, dah, dah, at the end of every line, and it kind of almost changes the meaning of the song. And uh, yeah, despite what they say, I I do think being a member of Duran Duran in their pomp at this exact moment must have been pretty fucking amazing. Oh, yeah. Mm. It is very cocaine you're right, Simon. And, and much like another record that we're going to come to later, yeah, am I going to seek this out and listen to it? No, but I am very glad it exists. Mm. I, I, I'm glad it's there and I know it's out there because it does yeah. offer amusement and delight in equal measure. Yeah. I mean, they're back in the country after months on tour and they're putting themselves about uh, on various TV appearances and whatnot. But in this very day's issue of the Daily Mirror, there's a two-page spread on Duran as part of their week-long series called Britain Rocks America <laughs> with a graphic of a very 70s-looking guitarist thrashing away while the Stars and Stripes backdrop shatters under the onslaught of the Thompson Twins and the Eurythmics. <laughs> it reads, 20 years after the Beatles, Britain's rock stars have conquered America all over again. Duran Duran are one of the top bands taking the American road to riches. Their popularity here might be waning, but across the Atlantic, their future looks brighter than ever. You know, it's an interesting enough piece. They've done two nights at Madison Square Garden, but they still have to go to a school in Coney Island as the prize in an inter-school competition. <laughs> but they get to doss around with Andy Warhol and Jeremy Irons, and they do an advert for Suntory Whiskey for Japanese TV. So. Classic 80s. Classic 80s doing that, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, you can't get no more 80s than that. Do an advert in Japan that no one would see over here. It's, it's basically, you know, yeah. um, the foundation of, of the plot line of uh, um, Lost in Translation, even though... Um, mm. He is uh, Bill Murray's an actor in that. Madness did it, didn't they? With uh, yes, that that oh god, what was Honda it called? Sitter. In, yeah, in the city, the song. Yeah, mm. yeah. But hanging around with Andy Warhol, obviously, you know which member of Duran Duran uh, mm. loved that more than any of them and became his mate. It was Nick Rhodes, obviously. Of course, <laughs> the, their own little Warhol, their mini Warhol in the band. You know, we're bragging on that British bands are bringing in export money and all this kind of stuff. Mm. The trade-off is the band isn't as good as it used to be because it has to be that way so thick Americans can get it. <laughs> Bit unfair to the Americans there, I feel. And also, they were just spending a lot of time over there. Because what happens in 1983, of course, is MTV is launched. Mm. And that meant fuck all over here because nobody even had cable in this country. No. Yeah. But... In the States, it meant that bands who were the stars of the new pop in this country in 82, 83 were able to break America almost overnight just by having mm. a great video in a way that previously they'd have had to tour for five years. Like, you know, yeah. we've, we've talked about how Slade tried and failed to do yeah. that. Mm. Culture Club would have had to do that in the old older days, uh, just mm. like 10 years or even less than 10 years earlier. Yeah. But suddenly you've got these bands who are very visual very glamorous looking the english haircut bands as grumpy american rockers would call them yes <laughs> but duran duran's videos are fucking made for this because yeah. their videos yeah, yeah. have got the same production values as dune or dune as they say in america or blade runner <laughs> or something like that yeah. so yeah the, the, the trade-off was that a lot of these bands were kind of because they'd already had their big moment in the uk in 82 83 they were naturally kind of running out of steam a little bit and at, at that exact moment they're running out of steam and then maybe they need to take a bit of time off they are being forced to go over and pedal themselves in america mm. yeah obviously a lot of that can be done by video but even so it's going to be knackering them out yeah yeah even yeah. abc you know abc were kind of a um a one or two year 
Sphere Wonder in this country and mm. uh, one album wonder really in, in terms of how we perceive them but they were doing really well in the States while we weren't looking um, yeah. Culture Club went over and, you know Culture Club with the album Waking Up With A House On Fire which uh, I think was 84 I haven't got my facts in front of me but certainly uh, it felt that that was they were kind of running on empty a little bit even though there's some stuff on the album that I love they were just fucking burning the candle at both ends of going over to the States and, and flogging themselves over there and I guess that's what was going on with Duran and yeah I, I think when you sort of compare all the bands who did try and do it Duran made a better fist of it than most mm. and you could say that having the biggest selling UK single of their career is papering over the cracks a little bit and I guess we do know in hindsight that it was only a year later that they basically mm. break up or they certainly yeah. dissolve into two factions Arcadia and the power station mm-hmm. and they're never quite the same again after that but yeah. still at this point it looks like they're getting away with it yeah and they could, yeah. I think they could perhaps have continued to go away from it if they hadn't detached into those two factions because you know Wild mm. Boys when that comes out that's still a major event I remember the excitement mm. about that yeah. video coming out and even of you to a kill as well um they are right pair yeah. of number twos aren't they but um yeah I, I i think i think that yeah it's the detachment into arcadia and power station that ultimately does for them but i guess trying to break america even if you're doing it with videos is going to do that you know that plus cocaine it's a recipe for a breakup isn't it yeah the involvement of niall rogers i think on this record is a really sweet bit of wish fulfillment for duran because mm. famously they're kind of template when they began was to combine Sex Pistols and Chic. Yeah. I would say that they're a lot closer to Chic than they ever were to the Sex Pistols but apparently John Taylor was sat in a pub somewhere in Brum and a track by the Pistols and a track by Chic came on on the jukebox one after the other and he thought well you know what if you jam those two together and mm. finally you know quite a long way into their career they're getting to work with Nile Rogers, who would also go on to produce Wild Boys and of course after the whole um, Arcadia power station business which let's not forget involved Tony Thompson from chic Mm, as well as uh, uh, Bernard Edwards essentially they make some of their best material with Nile Rodgers even though the world's not listening so much anymore stuff like Notorious and Skin Trade one final question that needs to be addressed what the fuck is this to reflex bollocks that Simon (laughs) Le Bon's coming out (laughs) with yeah you're right never thought of that like his fucking Bill Oddie in Ecky Thump oh like to reflex right outrageous (laughs) to reflex (laughs) Like when uh, when when Limmy does blamange living on the ceiling, it's like I'm upped bloody tree. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> fucking yeah. hell, yeah. ridiculous. I would have thought Le Bon was taking the piss out of me if I'd heard that uh, when I was ten or eleven or twelve because I had such a bad stutter. Right, mm. and I was in a school <laughs> play once. I um I had to play Prospero in Shakespeare's yeah. The Tempest, and I got that lead role because I was the best at English, but um. I had a real problem saying lines, particularly any lines that began with the word the. It was THs in particular mm. yeah. that I couldn't I couldn't manage. So I had to almost rewrite Shakespeare. I remixed Shakespeare in my own <laughs> head, in my own mouth, to, to sort of start the sentence with a word that wasn't the, uh, which is quite tricky. Um, so, yeah, if I'd heard uh, Le Bon going to reflex or do reflex and then going flex, 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 flex. I'd have thought, yes. you fuck, fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> so the following week, the reflex swept aside the current number one from the summit of Mount Pop and stayed there for four weeks before it gave way to wake me up before you go, go by wham. 
The band pretty much then went on hiatus, dabbling in the side projects Power Station and Arcadia, getting married to various models, arsing around on yachts, and putting out the live LP Arena in November. The only studio track on that album, The Wild Boys, was put out as the follow-up single to this, and it got to number two in November of this year, unable to dislodge I Feel For You by Shaka Khan from the top. Two days after this broadcast, according to a Duran fan site, the band were temporarily barred from Saturday Superstore when Andy Taylor bumped into the actor Erkan Mustafa, Roland Browning in Grange Hill, offset and said, fuck off fatso, which was picked up by his mic and broadcast live. Fucking hell, Gripper Taylor. (laughs) Gone off Duran now. Yeah, that's like... I can't believe that, because that would have electrified the playground, man. Yeah, never mind Gordon Brown and that bigoted woman. I mean, fucking hell. Maybe Duran Duran got him to roll about on the floor and then made him eat a sandwich with a grasshopper in it or something. Bastard. And on that jarring note, Pop Craze Youngsters, we're going to step away from this episode and come back tomorrow for one last dig at this episode of Top of the Pops. Don't forget we do a video playlist for every episode we do. You can get to that at bit.ly.com slash chartmusicvids. That's bit.ly.com slash chartmusicvids. All one word all lowercase. And if you want the whole episode in one go without any adverts, you know what to do. Get that money, stick it down this G-string at patreon.com slash music. See you tomorrow, me dears. My name's Al Needham. Their names are Neil Kulkarni and Simon Price. And you are staying pop-crazed. <laughs> Chart music. Acast anbefaler. Mit navn er Anders Morgenthaler. Over for mig sidder Roald Bergmann. Vi har lavet en ny podcast, der hedder Dopaminklubben. Og Dopaminklubben er en klub, hvor ADHD er fucking sjovt, og hvor det griner. Det behøver ikke at være super alvorligt. Vi skider træt af alle de der podcast og forklarer meget nederen der. Vi gør grin med vores ADHD. Mulig ADHD. Ja, vi udreder mig, fordi nogen siger, at jeg har det. Jeg ved det ikke rigtigt, det finder vi ud af. Vi har i hvert fald lavet vedmål. Ind og lyt til Dopaminklubben. Hver uge udkommer vi. Der laver vi sjov og spas med at have den her vidunderlige dopaminmangel.